After introducing you to our History of LGBT Spaces in London podcast series in episode one, we, that is me, Andrew Belt, UCEM's PR and Social Media Manager, and Eliza White, UCEM's Digital Communications Officer, are back for episode two, where Eliza will share her research on the first of our two London case studies, which is Vauxhall. So Eliza, why Vauxhall? So doing my research, I was struck at just how long a space with queer significance had been on this one particular site. And that's really quite uncommon. And as I had said in the in the previous episode, it's a real reminder that LGBTQ plus people have always existed. And the, the first place we're going to look at is Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens. So could you tell me a little bit more about this venue? Sure. So um, Pleasure Gardens in general, sort of the pinnacle of nightlife in London in the 18th century. And they weren't as space specifically for queer people. They had mass appeal. Um, and even Charles Dickens wrote about the Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens. So the Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens opened in 1729 and its design sort of lent itself to private rendezvous. So it has these ornate archways um, and you can still see these now because the railway runs across them. But they were really quite private and it did. that's why it was so popular as a meeting place for queer men. And it seems like this was a known fact, but one that wasn't particularly talked about so much at the time. It was just generally accepted. However, from the 19th century, which is a time that we often consider to have more prudish sensibilities, although I don't know how fair this generalisation really is, there were an increased number of complaints about the garden's popularity as a kind of site for meeting for queer men to meet. And magistrates eventually ordered more lighting to be put up at the venue. And this meant that those archways weren't quite as discreet as they used to be. Um, And we can kind of view this as an example of some hostile design. I mean, this is something that we often talk about in relation to sort of homeless deterrence um, these days. But I I think here we can also attribute hostile design to this additional lighting in the gardens. We, we talked about your research and, and how you find this information in, in our introduction to the series. And, and you were saying it was the criminal records which gave you a lot of that information. Here we're reaching back to the 18th century, but, but again, there's it's hostile design, which you, which you mentioned there. So sadly, there, there's always a negative spin on the history when, when you look back and, and how society reacted to the LGBT community and the the spaces they were spending time in. So we've gone quite far back then, but do the gardens still exist now? So there is still a public park on site, but due to waning popularity, the Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens as a commercialised nightlife space did shut down shortly after this magistrate's order in the 19th century. And the railway arches, which were used as this private space for queer men to have rendezvous, now host other queer venues. So that includes Club Paradise, the theatre above the stag, and until the pandemic when it shut down, the Chariots Roman Spa, which was a gay spa. And of course, the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. Yeah, the legacy still lives on in, in terms of the space and, and, and where this was. So you mentioned the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. What's its cultural significance to the area? So it wasn't long after the Vauxhall Pleasure Garden shut down that the Royal Vauxhall Tavern was built on the same site. And initially, like the Pleasure Gardens, it wasn't a specifically queer venue. 
but it was frequented by a largely LGBTQ plus clientele and it became almost exclusively LGBTQ plus after the Second World War. A lot of servicemen who would have perhaps identified as queer started to frequent the pub and throughout its history it's got a really large um, significance with popular culture so many acts including especially drag acts have performed there over the years. Perhaps the most popular with UK listeners would be Lily Savage and it was even one of Freddie Mercury's favourite places to, to have a drink. So quite the history, you might say. So, so there, there's some of the, the roles it's played um, since it's come into existence after the Victoria, uh, sorry, the Vauxhall Pleasure Garden shut down. And, you know, there, there's some good references there, Lily Savage, Freddie Mercury, and, and the proliferation of drag acts at the venue. But what challenges have the, has the tavern had through its existence? So um, more recently, in the 1970s and the 1980s, the local area around the tavern underwent huge redevelopment. Fortunately, the venue did endure. It has often been the target of homophobic attacks, including one specifically nasty one by the National Front in 1978. And it's also been the target of police raids. So even after the decriminalisation of homosexuality, police would raid the tavern, citing obscenity laws as the reason for um, the investigation. And then into the 1980s, police started to wear rubber medical gloves during these raids. And when they were brought up on this this behaviour, they claimed it was because they didn't want to get infected by AIDS, which really just goes to show how large inaction around surrounding AIDS because they considered it to be a specifically gay disease really harms the LGBTQ plus community and it it's really evident in these kind of shows of violence and harassment by even by the establishment. Following that, um, and more recently still, there was a multi-million pound buyout of Tavern by property developers, and this really threatened the Tavern's existence. The company is an Austrian company, and they typically turn venues such as the Tavern into hotels and things like that. But there was a big campaign that was launched to save the venue, and that's called RVT Future, so Royal Vauxhall Tavern Future, and they were successful in securing Grade 2 listed status. And this is amazing because it's the first in the UK to receive this status for its LGBT heritage, which is just amazing news. I mean, fascinating, the history there. And and, and it's so good that you're ending on a positive because clearly we're talking about the challenges and, you know, the attacks, which you referenced before. And and obviously in this same podcast with the the hostile design But you mentioned the 1980s as well. Of course, there was it. It's a Sin was the Channel 4 Uh, program which which was recently shown on on the UK TV screens which showed the kind of discrimination the LGBT community faced whilst aid was in the news and and first being discovered so yeah some some really awful touchstones there only 40 years ago as well that these uninformed views were were really commonplace both in the media and you talk about the police as, as well also taking that on board and being heavy-handed in their treatment of such venues but we move on to the to to uh to latterly and you know so so fantastic that these groups you mentioned Royal Vauxhall Tavern Future can mobilise to to save such venues and and with 
grade two listed status, you can protect the heritage of such places and it clearly plays a very important role in the history of LGBT spaces in London. So that's what we've looked at. Is it still serving the area? So yes it is. So thankfully the tavern has survived COVID and it now boasts a packed schedule of events just as it did before the pandemic began. Fantastic. So we've heard from Eliza about the history of the Royal Vauxhall Tavern some of the challenges it has experienced through its lifetime, and finally confirmation that it is still serving the local community. And on that note, I'm delighted to be joined by the Tavern's CEO and Managing Director, James Lindsay. Hi, James. Uh, Good morning, Cheers. So uh, after a long and distinguished career in shopping centre management, James was appointed into his current role in 2014. So first of all, I want to ask, how did you first become involved with the Royal Vauxhall Tavern? So I was, I was interested in Eliza's podcast on LGBT History Month, uh, you know, outlining the difficulties that gay people face in the workplace, particularly particularly in, in the 1980s. And that, that actually comes back to me because I actually got dismissed from the Royal Navy for being gay in 1982. And, you know, I got my first job in shopping as a shopping centre manager in 1983 from a very supportive um, charter surveyor who was looking after the Cameron Tour Centre in Edinburgh. You know, coupled with like three decades in the shopping centre industry at Meadowhall, Trafford and Westfield, where I looked after their portfolio of 10 shopping centres. So in 2001, I came to London um, to join Westfield and not having been to Royal Vauxhall Tavern, I bought my first flat just a very short distance across the way. And for two years, I didn't come anywhere near the building, but knowing what it was, and a friend of mine came from Alicante for, um, for a weekend and said, come on, James, get your dancing shoes on, we're going. And, of course, I landed over for a Sunday afternoon of cabaret and for a little bit of a dance. And two years later, I went and bought it at auction. Fantastic. Wow. It really touches upon a lot of things we're, we're finding out through this series in terms of the discrimination experienced by the LGBT community and shocking that as, as recent as 1982, you can be talking about the Royal Navy banning you uh, for, for being gay, which is just shocking in, in, in this day and age and, and any, any age, really. Thank, thanks for uh, running through that. So how different is it being involved with the Royal Vauxhall Tavern compared to your previous roles? Well, uh, interestingly, it's been like one of the key industry leaders having shaped the shopping centre industry back in terms of the, the new generation of Italian shopping centres. You know, helped to pioneer change to the Sunday Trading Act in 1994, reporting in at board level for a £5 billion, 10 shopping centre portfolio, £450 million P&L, is very different like to owning your own company. You know, RBT is an iconic London landmark steeped in history and culture, which has created certainty and enriched the reputational status to be one of London's music and being a catalyst to London's nighttime economy. But even over my, my 30 years in the shopping centre industry, there's only one of, been one of my employers who have been very supportive, knowing about in terms of my personal circumstances, and that was the guy who owned the traffic centre. Everybody else, it's been a problem for them. You know, we, we heard about experience which, which were more general when, when we had our introduction, but to hear it firsthand from yourself and, and the challenges you face just to be yourself and to be accepted both 
the Navy and, and, and in the shopping centre industry is, is well, uh, with the exception of Trafford, you say. Sorry, that you, you've had to experience that. And whilst we're talking about challenges, I mean, with the RVT, what challenges have you faced during your tenure? And, and linked to this, what have been your greatest achievements in the role, would you say? Yeah, sure. Look, when, when I first became involved with it back in, in 2005, you know, it was a, a venue which was only open two days a week, Saturday and Sunday. When when we paid the $1.25 million to buy it at auction, we then went to seven-day trading. I was very much involved in the initial period, but having two, it was a, a, a 50 GB partnership, but having two people at that level in the company didn't really work all of the time, so I carried on back doing my shopping centre and commercial work. And coming around 2012, the, the RBT-GB partnership was becoming problematic. It, it had experienced six years of consecutive losses. You know, the, the two directors couldn't agree on, on the direction the company was going. And um, I stepped in and forced the sale to force the freehold sale and retain the leasehold interest. Just shortly after that, um, RBT in, in 2014 was made an asset of community value. It was Grade 2 listed in 2016, and it had so generous status um, awarded in 2017. But over my tenure, I mean, I've been able to stabilise the company and put in place the most diverse events programme to cover all our community, embracing the trans and the transgender and marginalised groups across our community. And now have artists been given a platform, you know, to showcase their work. And together with that, now RBT is a preferred venue of choice by many leading international artists, including Belinda Carlisle, you know, Mutual Benner, uh, Gabrielle, Boxfizz, Three Degrees, Sonia, Misha Paris, Toya, many, many more. And that, that's the, the, the stature which the venue now enjoys. I mean, that's, that's great you've been able to, to bring in your shopping centre management to, to stabilise the RVT. And, and also, you know, it's interesting when you were saying about how you went first have an evening at the RVT and then later you've become involved and, and, and taken it on as, as a business. So, I mean, what does the Royal Vauxhall Tavern mean to you? And going further, why does it matter from a cultural point of view? Sure. Well, when I first came here on that Sunday afternoon, I, uh, I wasn't really sure what to expect. I used to go past on the Sunday afternoon for my, my Indian takeaway meal. That was my treat when I first joined Westfield we're getting into like to all of that big commercial portfolio. When I came here on the Sunday and the atmosphere just, I mean, I'd, I'd gone to like to gay clubs and bars across the UK throughout, throughout my life really, but when I came to RBT, the atmosphere which hit me when I came in here, you know, with the cabaret and the community sense and the community feel, it absolutely just blew me away. I'd never experienced anything like it in any venue I'd been in before. And I put it down to, you know, just to, to my first visit. And then after a couple of visits, it, it, it was a consistent message that kept coming back to me about just in terms from a cultural aspect and historic aspect in terms of what RVT meant to so many people. You know, so in, in the early 1980s, it was known as the Palladium of Drag. You had like Lily Savage here where this was the platform of, of Paul O'Grady getting in to launch his career and, of course, been very successful from that. And RBT has assisted so many people along the way and been able to do that in, in its own perfect way. So that, that's really what it means to me in terms of which I think we do we do to the best of our ability here. It's great that when you're describing what, what it means to you, you know, would you say this is the most passionate you've ever felt in a role? I think it's the most comfortable I've ever felt in a role, Andrew, because mm. when, 
but when you're up in, in the shopping centre world, in, in, in the commercial property world, you know, even even if you look at as an example, many of the, the, the company portfolios out there, the, the men in suits in terms, of, it is it is a very straight environment for you to try and make your mark and and, and be recognised to be taken seriously. It's, it's quite a challenge, and I got that opportunity at Travel Centre with John Whitaker. He he was very accepting of what was going on. Westfield less so, but you know Westfield gave me the platform from the commercial aspect to be able to put the building box in place for RBT. And I think to be able to sort of stabilise the company and to turn it around and to, to put a million pound in turnover to make a, a two million pound a year company with six-figure pre-tax profits, which is never enjoyed before, I think the fact that commercial experience it never would have happened. Just, just briefly rolling back on the on the shopping centre side, you know, it's, it's quite concerning to hear that you don't feel, with the one exception, you were made to feel too comfortable uh, to be yourself. Are things better now than, than when you when you left uh, Westfield? Oh, well, listen, with, with RBT, I mean, we, we said we, we create our own destiny here, you know, as, as owner and CEO in the company, you know, we've got to embrace the changes. You know, RBT has, has created the, the programme of events to include um, all of all parts of our um, our community and to be able to embrace all of that in a very proactive way. We're the only venue in the UK which has got a set of rules in place in terms of making sure that when people come here, you know, everybody's treated with respect. And a lot of people like use that now as, as the beginning point to be able to make sure that from an acceptance point of view that it happens and it happens very well. And and that how things should be, you know, it, it, it seems so so obvious, but it's it's crazy that you know, there's been so many challenges and continue to be challenges for for that to be the case and and to be universally the case as well. So so just just back to RBT. I mean, what plans do you have for the venue moving forward? So we will, we will continue to improve our events program. You know, despite the effects of COVID and the, the devastation really the hospitality industry has faced over the last two years. RBT has bounced back like in a much stronger position than we were at our peak trading pre-COVID. So our business model must be right here, Andrew, and I think we've got to continue to build on that and to ensure the acceptance in moving forward. And I suppose like really there's a lesson there for many LGBT venues across London and across the UK that they have got to be operating and providing what people want. Mm. And, and, and that's how I'd like to close as well, to kind of... Take take a look at the wider picture. We're obviously focusing on London. So I wanted to ask, you know, with the rise of digital spaces, greater acceptance of the LGBTQ plus community allied to the rising costs of managing venues in London. What role do you think LGBTQ plus spaces will have in the capital moving forward? And would you say now is the most difficult time for LGBTQ plus venues in London? I think without doubt now is the most difficult time for LGBT venues, but for the hospitality sector across the UK, you know, as, as the business recovery programs bounce back, some are doing it better than others. I'm glad to say that we, we are back up there very quickly again. But in order for LGBT, LGBT venues to survive, I think they need to provide what, really what the community wants. You know, you can't, I don't think you can stigmatise yourself with one particular aspect of being drag or whatever. With RBT, we do cabaret performance and club nights, and it's those three areas that really, I think, set us apart from, from other areas. And for any venue to survive now, I think, diverse, in terms of diversity and culture, I think everybody has to look at what they are actually providing as part of that business model.
And just, just to squeeze one last question in, if I may, you know, one of your achievements was gaining the grade two listed status for the RVT. Would that be a viable route to perhaps give great, a greater foundation for some venues to, to remain in situ and to protect them going forward? Well, actually, Andrew, I, I didn't, um, I wasn't part of the, the grade two listing status. And, you know, I've never been about the building and, and, and I've always been very open and very honest about it. I've always been about what happens inside the building, which is why in 2018, I embarked upon the new 20 year lease. The grade two listing status is there, but as long as my lease is in place and I, I'm around RBT, I think the, the history and the culture of, of the LGBT community will be protected. I think that the difficulties come whenever new freehold owners come in or whatever, but with the so generous status in place, it will make it very difficult, I think, for any freehold or leasehold owner to change other, with it being other than sort of the, the cabaret, the, the performance and the club nights that we do. So, I mean, I think all of those measures in place put us in a very good, a, a very good position. That's great. Apologies, that, that was my fault for not, not air linking up the dates and, and, and achievements there. But yeah, certainly, you know, allied to the experience which you've added to the RVT, it, it puts the venue in a very strong position. And I think this could be a, a really good thing to, to listen to if, if there are any other owners of LGBTQ plus venues across London, just as an example of, of what you can do to, to retain the status and, and keep, uh, keep things going uh, in the right direction, basically. Yeah, it's been really fascinating. Thank you for your time, James. Um, and I wish... Just one thing, Andrew. Yeah, go on. I think, I think the thing that makes it slightly different here, as an independently owned LGBT venue, we've got to try harder because, I mean, it's, it's about our finance, our personal money and involvement here. It's about our livelihoods. If we were part of a, a sort of a, a multinational setup across with like many of the breweries across the UK, it might be very different. Mm. And maybe that's why we try so hard here to get it right. Mm. Okay, so so definitely more so from an independent venue status, which your experience can can really be enlightening in that sense. So yeah, I think we've gone into a lot of detail about what you've done during your time with with RVT. Um, I've appreciated you opening up about your your personal experiences and and your previous career background and showing the difficulties which have existed outside of of your current role. And and, and yeah, just just in general, I think it's it's great to hear that that it's thriving still. There are challenges, but you've got it on a solid footing. And yeah, whilst we were talking about some of the challenges which currently exist... You know, you're, you're standing out as one which is, is still going very well. So, uh, yeah, I wish you all the best, you and, that, and the Tavern, all the very best for the future. And thanks very much for your time. Uh, best of wishes both to you and Eliza. And that's a good move on our part to bring the LGBT history month into the forefront of people's minds. Thank you. Thank you, James. fascinating interview there with James and Eliza rejoins me for the final part of this episode. Uh, so what did you make of it? It was so interesting to hear James's perspective. I loved hearing how he acquired the tavern and his commitment in continuing the, the tradition of drag and cabaret events at the venue. And as part of the LGBTQ plus community yourself, did James's experiences shock you? Um, So I have to say that his experience wasn't particularly shocking to me. I mean, it must have been 
so disheartening to be kicked out of the Navy. I mean, it's a job which you put so much of your heart and soul into. I mean, I do completely sympathise with him regarding his experience of a lack of support from his employer. I feel so lucky that at UCM I've always felt so like normal and included. But at a place I've worked previously, I would have been a lot better off had I not come out. I just felt really alienated from my colleagues and I did not feel safe. God, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. It's, it's becoming a running theme throughout this, that, that both through the historical examples and also what from James's personal experiences and, and, and now, you know, you're, you're mentioning your own workplace experiences, that it's a, a lot more commonplace than perhaps I had imagined. And I, I mean, on the plus side, like you say, at UCM, everyone is encouraged and supported to be themselves. There's the Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Working Group to ensure everyone feels respected and included. And we get behind awareness events both internally and externally. So perhaps because of this, it, su- it surprises me that there are still workplaces where your sexuality would be an issue. Uh, I think this episode has really shown me how ignorant I am to this and shows exactly why awareness events such as LGBTQ plus History Month are needed. I've, I've learned a lot already through this series, and I'm sure there's others who are listening who are not as aware of the issues faced by the LGBTQ plus community in the UK even today. Uh, just finally, uh, earlier you shared your research on Vauxhall's role in the emergence of LGBTQ plus spaces in London up until the present day. How do you feel about the future of LGBTQ plus spaces in the area moving forward, having heard from James? And do you think the Royal Vauxhall Tavern is the exception, not the rule? So I completely agree with James. I think challenges to the hospitality sector with the pandemic have caused so many venues to struggle to survive. And combining that with the ever-rising running costs does mean that financially, queer spaces are under greater threat than ever before. I think the advantage that the Royal Vauxhall Tavern does have is its heritage. It brings together older patrons, younger patrons, and, you know, the history fans who don't want to lose this um, part of London's past. And I think a newer venue wouldn't have this advantage and this kind of interest. Thanks, Eliza. Really good to discuss, discuss the interview. And, you know, that's it in terms of the, the interview side for this podcast. I've really enjoyed learning about Vauxhall's LGBTQ plus spaces past and present. And it was enlightening to get James Lindsay's insight as CEO and Managing Director of the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. As, as well as your perspective on the interview just now. So, so that's Vauxhall. In episode three, the focus will switch to our second case study, Soho, with Eliza sharing her research on the area. And we hope to get an interview from someone working in the area today too. To keep up to date with the series, either follow us on whichever podcast platform you're listening to us on, or keep an eye out for updates on our Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram and Facebook channels. So thanks, Eliza. Thank you. And thanks for listening.